Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, wow. All right. Nobody's excited about their moms today? Well, for those of you, the three of you that are excited about your mothers, uh, happy Mother's Day. This is awesome. Listen, we understand that um, Mother's Day is a mixed bag, you know, it really is. It really is a mixed bag. So some of us have a great relationship uh, with our moms, and we're, we're really excited about that. Some of us don't have a great relationship with our moms, and so, you know, Mother's Day is a little, right? Um, some of us want to be moms. And we're not moms. There's a lot of people who won't show up to church on Mother's Day because Mother's Day is painful in a lot of ways, and we're sensitive to that. The Bible says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice, and we should mourn with those who mourn. And so we rejoice. For those of you who you're a mom here today and you're thrilled about that, we rejoice with you. For those of you today that you have a mother that you get along great with, we are rejoicing with you. And for those of you who are, for whatever reason, Today is a painful day. We mourn with you. We mourn with you. We're sensitive to that. And uh, we just pray that today is a day that God would show up in all of our lives. Have you ever lost something that's like really, really important to you? Like super important. You've lost. You can't, you're searching all over the place. You can't find it. A bunch of years ago, my son was about five years old, and a buddy of mine had a place at Rehoboth Beach. And he said, hey, you can go down there and stay if you want. So, uh, so we did. Went down, Chris and I and our son Jonathan went down there and one day we were there, we're driving down the road and we saw this shopping mall and uh, Chris said, hey, let's, let's go shopping. Let's check this out. And so we went in there and we weren't in there too long. It was like an outdoor mall walking around. We lost Jonathan. I mean, he was right there and all of a sudden he wasn't right there and we didn't know where he was. And so we went into full panic mode, Jonathan, you know, like Chris is ready to shut the place down. Where's the security guards? And we're just screaming all over the place. It turns out he was right around the corner. And I'm just thinking to myself the whole time as we're searching for him and we're panicking. I'm like, I knew Jesus didn't want us to go shopping. This is the worst idea. You know, I shouldn't have listened to the shopping plea. Anyway, we found him and that, and, and that was great. But have you ever has anything really important to you ever, ever gone missing? How about God? What if God went missing? What if something you really, really, really needed? And like, where are you, God? Why aren't you showing up? And I'm praying and I don't sense you. I don't feel you. I don't see you at work. What if God went missing? Psalm 13 is all about that. It's all about the fact David writes it. He's in a difficult time and he wants God to show up. And I'd like to begin today by reading the 13th Psalm. It's on the back of your bulletin. It's on the screen. It says this, how long, Lord, well, you can stop right there. My goodness. Have you ever felt that way? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God is hiding. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. I have overcome her. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. And here's the whole turning point. Everything turns, it pivots on this one word in verse 5. But I will trust in your unfailing love. Today is all about how we find God in tough times. We find God in tough times by trusting in God's unfailing love. We're going to look at a book in the Bible, most unique book in the entire Bible, the 
the most unique book in the entire Bible. God is never mentioned one time. There's no other book like it. The book of Esther. God is never mentioned one time. Esther's name actually means I am hiding. And what we'll see next week is that she actually hides her identity, that she's Jewish. She doesn't want to tell anybody that she's Jewish. So when Daniel, you read about this guy named Daniel in the Bible, he tells, hey, I'm Jewish and I won't do this and that. Esther, she like hides it from everybody. So she's hiding and God's hiding. Everybody's hiding in the book of Esther. God can't be found. It is so incredibly unique. But eventually, eventually she comes out of hiding and she puts her very life on the line. She puts the palace on the line. She puts paradise, paradise on the line to save thousands and thousands. Spoiler alert saves thousands and thousands and thousands of people as a result of that. And that reminds us of who? Wonder Woman. Did anybody see Wonder Woman? Anybody see the box office smash? Anybody at all? It was a huge hit. What does she do? I didn't see the movie, but I read the notes. Okay. So she, she leaves paradise to do what? To save the entire planet. And so Esther very much is like this Wonder Woman. You have to think about this. Has there, has there ever been in your life? You know, a woman who is self-sacrificing, who's willing to put their life on hold. A lot of us, you know, as parents or as moms, moms, maybe you had a mom that did that, put their life on hold. We, I used to think, okay, we're putting our life on hold until our kids turn 18. And then I realized my kids are past 18. It's still on hold. Okay, It just never stops. But somebody who sacrificed, you know, for you in a huge way and just made a really big, maybe it was a mom, maybe it was a sister, maybe it was another family member, but somebody was kind of like Christ-like almost, like because they put their life on hold for you to help you and bless you, some big way, some small way, whatever. It could have been a neighbor. It could have been a church person. And that's how God shows up. We had something happen um, at Grace a few weeks ago at our West Falls Church location. We had a young child pass away. It was a very difficult time. And I watched as a group of ladies wrapped that family that lost that child and was going through the devastation in total love just were there constantly at the hospital three, four o'clock in the morning. And when it came time for the celebration of life service, I walked into the kitchen. We were at a Presbyterian church in Fairfax. It was a massive, it was like half the size of this room. It was just enormous. I walked into the kitchen, there was about 20 women in there. And they had been working, work, not just that day, but had been working up until that moment. And I looked at all of them that are there and they were just finishing up and cleaning up. And I just had this impression, now there's God. There's God at work. And sacrificing for other people. You know, I'm always hesitant to talk in a room that's filled with nothing but women, but I felt that I just needed to say, you know what? I am so moved by what you guys have done today. Have you had somebody like that in your life? And doesn't it touch us? Isn't it incredibly moving. Here's the big idea of the book of Esther. God is at work even when it appears that he's not. God is at work in your life and in my life even when it appears that he is not. Let's read this story because it's an amazing story and everything gets kicked off in chapter one. It's fascinating. I'm going to comment a little bit along the way. So for a full 180 days, he, King Xerxes, king of Persia, king of Persia, displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom. All right, everybody, this is, what you're going to get in this is a contrast between God's kingdom and the king of Persia. What he's doing here, 180 days, 180, he just wants to flaunt his wealth in just a magnificent, over-the-top way. 
So he's flowing as well of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. So the king, the king of Persia, Xerxes, is considered God. Why is he doing You know why he's doing this? You know why he's throwing a party that lasts 180 days that is absolutely over the top, incredible? Because he's saying to everybody in his kingdom, trust me. You can trust me. Look at all this money. Look at all this wealth. Look at all the power I have. Trust me. You know why? Because they're getting ready to go to war. Anybody see the movie 300? Huh? Gerard Butler? This is it. This is what's happening. King Xerxes is going up against Gerard Butler in 300. This is actual historical fact. They're getting ready to go to battle. And so he is saying, you can trust me. We're going to fight the Spartans. We're going to fight Greece. You can trust, trust me. Why can you trust me? Because I'm so rich. Because I'm so powerful. Because I have so much. You can absolutely trust me. It's a contrast between kingdoms. Let's keep reading. When these days, verse number five, were over. The king gives a banquet. Okay, so he holds this huge feast for 180 days for everybody from the kingdom. And then now he's going to hold, he's going to hold a feast from everybody who is living in the city where his palace is, right? All the men, great to insignificant in his opinion. All right. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic of pavement, a porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. You know what's fascinating? You're like, okay, all right. Thank you, John, for reading that. That's awesome. We only get one other detailed description of of paradise, of of a temple, of a palace. We only get one other detailed description like that. You want to guess whose temple, whose palace it is? Almighty God. So in a very subtle way, what the writer is saying, you don't get another detailed description in the Bible like this. This is the kingdom of the world against the kingdom of God. And it's contrasted. How do they function? How do they work? And this is over the top. It's audacious. It's in your face. It's powerful. It's a bam right out there. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So to have goblets of gold that are all unique is just over-the-top wealth. To tell people, the king, to tell people, hey, you can drink as much, it's over the top. Everything about this entire passage, everything about this story, everything about this kingdom is over the top. So you're getting the point? It's over the top. It's incredible. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, so he's drunk, all right, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown. In order to display what? What's he want to display? Her beauty. In order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. She, she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti, what? She refused to come. I can't imagine why she doesn't want to go into this room filled with drunken men. <laughs> Queen Vashti refuses to come. 
Then the king became furious and he burned with anger. This is a major wrinkle, everybody. The king of Persia is God. So whatever the king commands has to happen. And so he's trying to build everybody's trust. Look at all my wealth. Look at the over-the-top wealth that I have. It's incredible. And when I give a command, you're all here because you want to trust me more. When I give a command, it's got to be done. And if it's not done, you're not going to trust me because then I don't have absolute power. And everybody feels he has absolute power. So this is a major, major problem. It's a crisis in the kingdom. They call a cabinet meeting. They have to get together. They got to get all the lawyers together. They got to get all the officials together. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this? This is a huge problem. She's refused to come into the king's presence. What are we going to do? And then things get a little bit silly. They get really silly because they make this royal decree. Here's one point of the royal decree. Remember, she was refused to come to the king's presence, so they make this royal decree. You're not allowed to come to the king's presence anymore. Oh, shucks. That's kind of goofy. Here's the second one. We are afraid. Here's what the royal official said. We are afraid if the word gets out about what Queen Vashti has done. Ready for this? All the wives in the kingdom will hear about it, and they won't think they have to obey their husbands anymore. Oh, shoot. We don't want that to happen. So they made a royal decree. You know what they did? They didn't want anybody to know about this. So in the royal decree, they informed the entire nation what Queen Vashti did. What? It's a little ironic, isn't it? It's a little confused thinking. Are you following me? It's crazy. It's crazy. But this is what, this is what they do. Eventually what happens and what we'll get into next week is about five years later, all the Jewish people living in the kingdom of Persia, which basically they felt covered the whole world, their lives are put on the line. There's a wicked guy named Haman, and he hated a Jewish guy named Mordecai, and he wasn't satisfied with killing just Mordecai. He wanted to kill everybody, everybody, everybody who is Jewish. And their salvation began right here when King Xerxes got drunk and Queen Vashti refused his order. It is absolutely fascinating. This is about how to find God in tough times. It's contrasting two kingdoms that function in two very, very different ways. And if we begin to understand how God's kingdom functions, maybe we will be able to find God a whole lot more often in our tough times. So this is what we're going to talk about. So one kingdom is all about money and its power and its beauty and it's all things that are obvious. So it's, it, it is opulent opulent. It's overwhelming. That's one kingdom. And the other kingdom over here is very, very subtle. God is working in extremely subtle ways. So Queen Vashti refuses to come. And so they say, all right, uh, what are we going to do? We got to get another, we got to get another queen. And eventually King Xerxes, it says that he begins to get lonesome for her and he regrets what he has done. And so they come to him and say, we see that you're regretting, regretting this. And you know, we're not going to, we're not going to like reinstate her. So instead, here's our suggestion. We suggest that we do a Persian idol, right? So like we have this beauty contest, and the estimates are a 1,000 women. They bring a 1,000 women. Here's the three criteria for them, right? To be in the contest, you had to be young, beautiful, and a virgin. You had to be young, beautiful, and a virgin. Doesn't matter what your character is. Doesn't matter your family. We don't care about that. Young, beautiful, virgin, about a 1,000 women. And so they get beauty. They've told us repeatedly, get beauty treatments for a whole year. You get beautified so that you can meet the king's standards. You get beautified, and then you get your one night. You get your one night with the king in his bedroom. And if, he, if he's thrilled with you, if he's thrilled with you, then you, maybe you can become the queen if he's most thrilled with you. And so that is the one kingdom. There's nothing about the character of the person. And so here we see Esther, 
God, in a very subtle way, this young Jewish girl actually becomes queen and saves thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And I'm going to stop there because we're going to go into all of that next week. And here's what I want to focus on today, the contrast, the incredible contrast between these two kingdoms and how us understanding how God functions in our lives and in this world will help us to find God in tough times. Romans 8:28 says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is working. God is behind the scenes working. God is working even when we can't see God. God, when we can't, he's, he's nowhere to be found. We think he, we can't see that he's working in our lives. God is at work. God had made a promise to Abraham hundreds of years before Esther, hundreds and hundreds of years before Esther. And God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your children. This is when he didn't have any children. And I'm going to make your name great. So those who come from you are going to fill the earth. And now what we see later on, first of all, it happened in Egypt, right? They were, they were slaves in Egypt. And then now they're living here in exile. And this guy, wicked Haman says, I'm going to kill all of you. Well, that means God has to step up to the plate to do something about this. But God made this promise to his people that he would do it when Abraham was a nomad in the middle of the desert. Now, this is a historical fact I want to give you guys. When Abraham and those words were written, those words were written when Abraham was a nobody, okay? They were written. How many people in this world today, this very day, call Abraham great? How many people? Four billion people. That should give us some confidence in God. That those words were written when Abraham was a nobody. They were historically written. I'm going to make your name great. And today, four billion people on this planet, Christians, Jews, Muslims, all call Abraham great. We ought to step back and say, whoa, that's pretty good, God. Maybe you are for real. Maybe, you, maybe I can trust in you. God makes us great. And so God protects his people. Now, here's the storyline in the Bible that is actually fascinating because Esther, the book of Esther, is written almost, almost at the very end or the caboose of the Hebrew Bible, right? Malachi is last, but right there, right? The post-exile, you know, after Israel destroyed, right? It's right there. It's right there at the end. Now, here's the storyline in the Bible. In the beginning, God was obvious. You ever thought, you ever said to yourself, you know what, God, if you would just write your name in the sky, if you would just make it, if you would just make it overwhelmingly obvious, all my doubts would go away and I would just jump in with both feet and I would fully trust you. If, if, if you would just, oh, in an overwhelming way, make it so, well, God was in an overwhelming way. He was very obvious in the beginning. He's walking and talking with Adam and Eve. Really? Adam, I need you to name the animals. And they're just like hanging out together. Oh, yeah, that does look like a giraffe. Good idea, right? He's there. God's appearing. He's speaking. He's hanging out. He's walking with them. It says in the cool of the day, he's very obvious. There is no doubt. This is overwhelming. God is here. Then here along comes Eve. And this is also. Now, it doesn't say this, but allow me. Okay. It almost feels like he officiates their wedding. I've officiated a lot of weddings, but I'm not God. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. So he is incredibly obvious. And with all of that, they still break trust with God. That's impossible. You wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Because if God just wrote it in the sky, I'm all in. If God just made it overwhelmingly obvious, I would stop holding back. I'd be all in. And yet God was overwhelmingly obvious. And they just like, they broke trust. And this is they, lay, they left. They left. They left the garden. And they just kept walking east, east, away from God, east, east. And God kept appearing and he kept speaking, but in a lesser degree, started kind of going down. 
And now they're slaves in Egypt. Abraham's children become slaves in Egypt. And God all of a sudden shows up. And man, he shows up in a big way. And there's plagues. Now that's when you know God shows up. Like now there's God, right? Plagues are breaking out. The most powerful nation on the face of their Egypt is brought to its knees by God. Like, yes, I love it. And then they go out into the desert, Mount Sinai, and fire comes down on the mountain. The people see it. Oh, my goodness. And they hear the voice. It is obvious. God is in the house. Does it build their trust? Or do they keep breaking trust when God is overwhelmingly obvious? Does it build their trust? Or does it do they keep breaking their trust? They keep breaking. They keep going. They keep going. They keep going. What is the deal? God, if you'll just write it in the sky. But the reality is, well, I would never do what they did. And you would never do what they did because you and I are better people than there. Right? We wouldn't never do that. If God did that for us, we'd be all in. Right? God begins, God begins to pull back. He doesn't appear as much. He doesn't, he doesn't speak He doesn't speak as much. His display of power doesn't happen as much. Samuel, uh, 12th century B.C., so time is progressing. We're moving on time from Genesis to Abraham to Moses. Now we get up to Samuel. We keep moving forward in time. We're told that Samuel is the last person to whom God is said to have been revealed in the Hebrew Bible. A little couple hundred years after that, this guy named Solomon, real wise king, we're told Solomon is the last person to whom God is said to have appeared. And then finally we get to Elijah, right? Ninth century B.C. We're moving forward, moving forward. And we read that Elijah is the last person to whom God is said to do a public miracle in the Hebrew Bible. What is happening here? God's pulling back. That's why David is writing, God, you're, you're, you're hiding. Do you get the progression? God was very obvious, extremely obvious. You and I are looking for God. God, where are you? I'm looking for you to be incredibly obvious. Write it in the sky. I'm looking for you to overwhelm me with your power. But that already has not worked. And so now God is pulling back, and God is pulling back. Will our trust, how has trust really grown in him? So then something, a major shift happens in the entire Bible, everybody. A major shift happens, 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19. God speaks to Elijah. He goes to this cave. He's inside this cave. God says, I'm going to talk to you. So here's what happens. You ready for this? There's wind. I mean, wind so powerful that rocks are splayed. They're big, huge boulders. They're flying all over the place. And then it says this. God's not in the wind. God's not in the power of the wind. And then it says fire, fire, like the fire that came down on Sinai. And then it says, God's not in the fire. Hmm. Then there's an earthquake. Of course God's in the earthquake. Power. It's obvious. God's not in the earthquake. And then it said there became a whisper. And God said, I'm in the whisper. I'm in the whisper. I'm not in the King Xerxes' power. I'm not into that pretentiousness. I'm not into that over the top. I'm in the whisper. I'm in the whisper. And I think about my own life and how God has shown up in the whisper. You finally get to Esther, and now there is not even the mention of God's name. There's no prayer. There's no fire. There's no earthquake. God's people's their, their lives are on the line, and there's none of that. There's not even an angel. I mean, we can't even get a simple angel to show up in Esther. There's nothing. 
There's nothing that's there. However, God is working in dozens and dozens of small, quiet, and subtle ways to save the lives of his people. And that is the reality. None of us really like people who are surface people, right? We don't really care for people who are pretentious or people who live on the surface at all. Shallow people is what we call them, right? We don't really care for people like King Xerxes who are all about money and power or just beauty. We don't care for people who judge other people based on the color of their skin or the size of their wallet. I said a few moments ago, the qualifications for the new queen were what? Young, beautiful, virgin. It's fairly shallow, don't you think? Not one mention of character. You know what the Bible says about a noble wife? A noble wife of character. A, noble who, a wife who has noble character is, far, is worth far more than rubies. Because the Bible, God, God's kingdom, doesn't value this pretentiousness, this over-the-topness, right? God values character. What are we, and what are we, what are we looking for? Why would we demand out of God which we dislike? I'm going to say that again. When we're looking for God and God to show up in our lives, why would we demand from God the very thing that we do not care for? Why would we base our relationship on God? God, I need you to show up in some overwhelming way. Something that we don't even care for. We don't like people who do that. We don't like pretentious people. We don't like shallow people. We just don't like it. So why would we base our relationship? Why would we ask God to write it in the sky? What if we're missing? What if today God is working in your life in a major way and you're missing it and I'm missing it all because we're looking in the wrong places and we're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong way? You know, it's amazing. I said a minute ago, right? So there in Egypt, and there's these plagues that come down, and then there's fire on Sinai, and you're like, that's so clear. It's like, now that's God. And that's what I want, to be honest with you. I want God to show up. I want God to show up in that kind of way in my life. But you know what? In Esther, God is working in all these quiet, subtle ways. So the whole thing starts off with what? The king gets drunk. Now, which one of us would say, now there's God. God has showed up. The king has gotten drunk. Thank you, Jesus. But that's what sets in motion everything that moves in that direction because God is working quietly, subtly to build their trust in him. When Grace Community Church started, oh, first of all, I, I was praying. I didn't, want, I, I didn't want to be in the ministry anymore. Some of you have heard me tell this story. Before. I didn't want to be in the ministry. I was, I was just done, and I felt like, God, three weeks I'm going to pray about what direction you want for my life. And I'm open to anything and everything as long as it's not ministry anymore. Because I was so hurt and wounded. I said, it can be anything you want. Anything. But it can't. I mean, I'll be a race car driver. <laughs> Whatever. Right? But it can't be a pastor. I'm done with that. And at the end of those three weeks, you know what it was? I would have preferred if God wanted me to go a certain direction, he would have written it in the sky. He would have done something overwhelming, you know, something crazy. Here, John, here's $10 million. Be a pastor. I mean, that would have been really cool. That would have been awesome. I would love that. But none of that happened. None of that happened. You know what it was? It was a whisper. And then I got to thinking, you know how I got in the ministry in the first place? I would have loved something to be over the top. I would have loved a King Xerxes over the top moment. I didn't get that. For me, it was just a whisper. And because of that, I doubted whether or not God had called me in the ministry for a long time. You know why? Because it was just a whisper. And I thought if God was going to do something special or do something big, it would always be over the top. But that's not the way his kingdom works. 
That has already happened. The over-the-top, obvious God walking and talking and being there and power and fire and earthquake, and that didn't build trust. That actually, that actually people kept walking away. It wasn't working. And so God's not functioning that way. And so you see less and less and less, and now you get to this point where God is quietly, subtly working behind the scenes. Now, what is holding you back today? What's holding you back today in your relationship with God? Are you waiting for overwhelming proof? You're like, you know what? I'm here. I'm, I'm like, I'm checking it out. or I'm kind of checking out my relationship with God. You know, I, there's some that like my time, I'll show up to church or maybe I'll pray every now and then or read the Bible. But there's some areas of all of our lives, aren't there? Like that door is locked. God's not getting in there. Like if God wants to get in there, he's going to have to do something overwhelming. He's going to have to give me some kind of convincing proof. Because until he gives me convincing proof, I am not budging. Until he gives me convincing proof, I'm not, not going to jump in with both feet. When he finally brings me the convincing proof, I'm in. Okay? John, I'm in when I get the convincing proof. And then I'm, I'll, be all, I'll be all in. The only problem is that doesn't work. And it's not the way God functions. What is holding you back? If you're waiting, if you're looking for God in your tough time, if you're looking for God in your tough time to come out with some over-the-top, pretentious, massive show of power, there's just one thing that you should be aware of. God tends not to work that way. And he tells us that in the storyline of the entire Bible, that God works in subtle ways. God's in the whisper, major shift with Elijah. I'm in the whisper, not the fire not the earthquake. So if you're looking for the -the over-the-top situation, it might not ever happen. Look for God in the subtle ways that he shows up. Xerxes says, you can trust me. Look at all of this money. Look at all this money. You can absolutely. And you know what's so interesting about that? Because he's got all the men, okay? Look, I just want to say this because sometimes people say things to me like, oh my gosh, you know, he just has all men in there and that's my problem with the Bible. You do know that the Bible is not affirming that, right? A lot of people say, hey, you know, I see that there's polygamy in the Bible and I can't believe in God because there's polygamy. You know the Bible does not, every, every situation of polygamy in the Bible, the Bible looks on it in a negative way. I hope you're picking up on that. So when you read he has all the men, yeah, the Bible's saying, yeah, 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 we, I'm not into that. But I hope that you pick up on that. So here he has all these men in this room. He's like, look at all my wealth and power. Of course you should. You should trust me. Isn't it interesting? I heard this this past week, a, st- a statistic on this. That for men specifically, how you know that a man begins to really trust in God is when they begin to trust in God with their money. Isn't that interesting? And here's what Xerxes goes after. He goes it after in an over-the-top way. Over the top. Will you trust God? I'm not going to trust God with my money. I'm not going to trust God with my career. How about relationships? Are you holding back and saying, you know, I'm going to do relationships and I'm going to do my life and I'm going to do my career and I'm going to do my plans. I'm going to do them my way. But if God happens to show up in some overwhelming way, like he just confronts me one day and says, stop, we're not going to do this anymore. Okay, then I'm in. But until then, I'm going to keep going. I'm not into the subtle. I need the obvious. Here's what we need to know. God is not functioning that way. You know, rich people aren't trustworthy just because they're rich. I'm not saying rich people aren't trustworthy. Rich people aren't trustworthy just because they're rich. Talented people aren't trustworthy just because they're talented. Beautiful people aren't trustworthy just because they're beautiful. 
What basis do you want to have a relationship on? What is it that makes you say, I'm jumping in with both feet? Is it not character? Isn't it always character? Isn't that what all trust, isn't that what all great relationships should be based on is character, not these other shallow surface things? They're good, they're great. They're good, they're great. But shouldn't all relationships, and so that brings us to the point, can you trust the character of God? Can you trust God's character? What you see here in this beauty pageant, this Persian beauty pageant, right, is the King Xerxes is basically saying, for all of those thousands of women who are paraded before him, right, saying, you have to give up your life in order to enter into my kingdom. That's what he's saying. You have to give up your life to enter into my kingdom. Here's what, for this beauty pageant, four things and only four things would happen to these thousand young, beautiful virgins. Just four things, just four things. It's only cabin. Number one, you could be an uncalled for concubine. In other words, you had your night with the king, you blew it, it's over, he's never going to call you again, but you can never have a life because that, that would be, you couldn't do that. That would be inappropriate because you've been with the king. And so you're banished to a place outside of the palace where you can never marry or have kids and he will never, ever, ever call you again. It's like permanent widowhood. First thing. Second thing, you're a called upon concubine. That's just all about his pleasure. It's all about his pleasure. Calls you when he feels like it. Now, there's thousands in the harem, so maybe like once every seven years, okay? So there's, because there's thousands, and we, we, we'll learn next week that uh, Queen Esther says, I haven't seen the king in 30 days, All right? There's a second thing that could happen. Third thing, you can become a wife. You become a wife, and so your children become heirs. And if you're really, 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 really lucky, really lucky, one of the favored special people by almighty King Xerxes, right, you become the queen, does that mean you get to go to see him anytime you want? No. You only come to see him when he calls you to come. And if, if you come and see him and he hasn't called you, you die. You get killed. We'll see this next week. This is what happens. That's the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is all about. That's the shallowness of the kingdom. Now, how's that contrast to the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Do we give up our lives for the kingdom of Jesus Christ? What we see is Jesus Christ giving up paradise, his kingdom, for us. He comes to us. He's accessible to us at all times. He comes and he serves us. And finally, finally, on the cross at the great climax of Christianity, he, he surrenders his, he gives his life up for us. Now, which of those kingdoms do you want to trust? It's a contrast between two kingdoms. Trusting and over-the-top power and riches and wealth and all the surface stuff and beauty or a kingdom of character. Which of those two kingdoms can you trust? You know, Xerxes eventually loses, right? Gerard Butler was too much for him. He inspired the Spartans. And eventually, it is a historical fact that Persia fell to Greece. Alexander the Great ruled the day. And then Alexander the Great fell. And who did they fall to? Rome. So you had the Babylonians, and then you had the Persians, and everybody was God, and everybody had power, and everybody had wealth, and Babylonians and Persians, right, and the Greeks and the Romans, and then the Romans fell. And you know what? They're all falling. They're all falling. And the whole time, God is quietly standing. God is quietly standing with his arms open wide saying, will you trust in me? 
Will you trust in me? Will you trust in my unfailing love? Will you trust in my character? I just, I just want to ask this question to all of us today, and I've got to tell you, it's the way that I function too. I do. I do. I look for stuff that's over the top. I mean, I say when I see something that's powerful, I say, okay, there's God. But when the king gets drunk or Vashti refuses, right, I don't necessarily say, oh, there's God. God has shown up. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't see it in those subtle ways. And that's what, what is ironic about all this is Vashti loses her job and thousands of people are saved as a result. And you think about you think about the many women who have refused and many women who have said no, but thousands of people have been saved as a result. It's quite interesting. What's holding you back today? What area of your life you're saying, look, you know what? Until I get that over-the-top thing, I'm not jumping in. And why would you, the question is, why would you base your relationship on a principle that you don't even care for, that you don't even like? If you will look around for the subtle things, maybe you'll see that God is at work in your life in a, in a very powerful way, even to this day. But don't look for the over-the-top. Look for God in the whisper, in the quiet, that he is at work. And you can trust his character and his unfailing love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that you explain this to us. Help those of us today struggling. We're, we're looking for that big thing, but no, you're already there. You're just standing there quietly in the corner with your arms open wide. Help us to finally run to you and stop this, to stop this, this waiting, looking for something that we don't even like. Help us to run to you in your character and to embrace you and to jump into your arms and to trust in your unfailing love. In Christ's holy name, amen.